let's start by setting our motivation. I was just thinking about how many things can get in the way of our Dharma practice. And one of the things that's most difficult to recognize is if we're having any kind of maybe pride about kind of anything really. Especially if you think about having some kind of accomplishments or something. Because I think that we may have learned in this series that um, a lot of these things aren't going to be that stable. I mean, our realizations aren't inherently existent. They're just actually transitory things. I think until we get to pretty far along in the path where there's enough uh, wisdom and lack of ignorance that our wisdom realizing reality is really more clear. So I think if we can just try to learn to recognize the parts of ourselves that get in the way Especially in this regard, it would be a great thing for our practice because if we have any kind of feeling like puffed up, knowing this, knowing that, can do this, can do that, that state of mind itself will interfere with us being able to be receptive and to learn because we kind of already know. So why would our mind be open? So what we want to try to cultivate, because of course we always have some of this popping up here and there, one way, shape, or form comes here and there. But we can actually just kind of take our mind to one that's more like one of exploration, kind of interest in things, taking a joy and um, learning, having a mind that feels like a beginner's mind, so there's like a lot of room in our mind to be open to things. So as we go through this quiz and Try to understand the paths and grounds. I think this is one topic that kind of puts us right back on our feet because it's such a difficult topic. Uh, I don't think that many of us felt too puffed up around this topic. <laughs> um, so that's a good thing. So we can remember that if we ever need to bring ourselves back down to earth. Maybe um, study these so that we can understand the path to full awakening, appreciate it, be inspired by it, 
learn the ins and outs and be able to actually achieve Buddhahood in order to help all beings be free of every suffering. Let's set that as our motivation for the time we spend together discussing these quiz. Okay, so we are on questions 9, 10, 11, and 12 tonight. And 9 is the, well, all of them are participatory, but 9 especially is uh, one where last week, the last question we had, number 8, we uh, looked a little bit at the 12 sets of qualities of Arya Bodhisattvas. These qualities, um, I'll just read what they are on the first ground where you see a hundred Buddhas in different Buddha lands instantly with the divine eye. By way of that, one knows how they bless themselves, which actually means inspire themselves. One inspires or blesses a moment such that it lasts a hundred eons. One enters into displaying the mode of taking birth, uh, the category of the past beginningless limit, and the mode of passing into death, the latter limit within those 100 eons, so coming and going. One is able to enter into and rise from 100 different meditative stabilizations in one moment. That's a very flexible mind. (laughs) Uh, With one's own body, one goes to 100 Buddha realms, usually to hear teachings, I suppose. Through vibrating those 100 worlds, one causes trainees to aspire to hear and practice the doctrine. Having illuminated those hundred worlds with one's own light, one teaches others. One ripens a hundred sentient beings in a moment by way of magical emanations. One opens a hundred different doors of doctrine. One emanates a hundred different bodies. One is able to surround each of one's own hundred bodies with a hundred bodhisattva superiors. So, do you believe that this is possible. <laughs> that was our first question. Do you believe gaining these 12 sets of excellent qualities is possible or not? Why or why not? And if you have doubt, how do you work with it? So luckily for me, I hadn't heard the one of the teachings where you got into a lot of this discussion before I thought about this myself. So I kind of know what precipitated this question a little bit now. I, was, I missed one teaching. Um, so I'd like to start with other people's thoughts, anyone who has something to share on this, including online, if they can manage it. Go ahead. Um, I uh, believe that these process of excellent qualities is possible, and I base that on um, the confidence that I've gained from uh, being around teachers who have uh, developed Mm-hmm. Let me say that so far. So Venerable Jigme is saying that she believes these 12 sets are possible and she has a basis of that belief, which is being around highly qualified teachers that exemplify many good qualities. I think I'm saying that right. And I think the other thing is, um, Venerable Children gave an example in the teaching about how if we look at... Um, 
what our skill level was when we were three mm-hmm. compared to what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was thinking today also about um, when I took a walk, uh, there was a caterpillar on the ground. And so to think about the metamorphosis that caterpillar goes through mm-hmm. from a crawling insect to a flying butterfly. Mm-hmm. So what she's saying is that uh, one of the examples Venerable Children gave was like, think about a three-year-old and what they're capable of, and then think of them much, much older and what a huge transformation happens there. Or then today when she was walking, seeing like a butterfly and just the transformations in the form of that being and just it leads her mind to be open to the possibility of a lot of transformation being possible. I think I'm paraphrasing you. Okay. And then um, there are times when my mind gets uh, doubting of my ability. Mm-hmm. And that's because I apply a Western mind to this path. Mm-hmm. And my Western mind is uh, informed by uh, the education that I've received. Mm-hmm. That you pick something, you embark on this course of study, you understand it, you gain knowledge, you get a degree. Mm-hmm. You know, and now you have it. Mm-hmm. And so when I don't check up to see how I'm holding, working with mm-hmm. this, that's when I get into trouble because I feel like I'm not progressing fast enough mm-hmm. um, because I'm using this Western framework. Mm-hmm. So what she's saying now is that when she runs into doubt, it's usually a self-doubt. It's based on the experience of being raised in our culture with our educational system and paradigm, really. And so that is one that you kind of take, you know, you click through, you go through the grades, you do this, you do that, you come out and boom, there you are. And um, and so if she finds herself falling into that kind of mind, then she has to realize that's happening and kind of, what, turn to another channel, would you say? Yeah, yeah. and I remind myself that this is um, a university study of many, many lives. Yeah, so she tells herself this is a university study of many, many lives. So instead of being, uh, which I forgot to say, being kind of discouraged because things don't come as fast as, you know, we're used to things being fast in our culture, and so Westerners have trouble with this. So she reminds herself that this is different from that. This will take lifetimes, maybe a more realistic outlook, both in the paradigm and the timeline. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I asked this question, um, or put this out um, in that session mm-hmm. um, because I just found that feeling so much in myself listening to what sound to me like magical words mm-hmm. and um, and then uh, listening to her and then reading the notes and looking at it what I realized for myself is what comes up is the uh, third of the two types of laziness 
the laziness of discouragement. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that so identified mm -hmm. until after that teaching. Let me repeat that. So uh, I think this teaching was the next to the last teaching when Zopa asked about, well, the discussion came up about doubt and how these 12 qualities seem so magical. You know, and her mind goes, wow, that's kind of out there. And then she revisited it after that and found that something she hadn't seen in her mind before, which was that the third kind of laziness, which is the laziness of discouragement, was coming up. And so she was able to touch into that and understand what, where maybe the doubt was coming from or what was associated with it at least. And then it was really interesting because over this bit of time, um, I've been just saying to myself during the day when I feel the least discouragement, not about these grounds and paths, mm -hmm. I still feel pretty hard, but just about maybe I'm on a task and I'm getting mm -hmm. tired or discouraged. I just say to myself, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really interesting. That it's encouraging my own self. Mm -hmm. And I realized I didn't have that skill much before. Mm -hmm. So then she's from that awareness has been kind of taking it into her daily life when things would come up, even just daily things, like more mundane things, she would just say, I can do this. And then she's realizing that that's something that she hasn't done so much for herself. So learning how to keep herself encouraged and not like let the mind sink into that type of laziness, which is really, really important because in the whole of the path contains the six perfections. One of them is joyous effort, and joyous effort is the one that's like right in the middle. You can't, you have to be able to make effort to progress. And so you have to find ways that, what is getting in the way of being able to make effort. So. And the very last part of that thing is um, for me is um, a bit of what Virginia just said, um, being content with the causes. Mm -hmm. The phrase that Virginia mm -hmm. says so often. Um, so she takes her back self kind of back to the present instead of thinking like eons in the future to creating the causes being content with creating the causes which is really a good view point to hold for this. Anyone else have things that they want to share? Yeah. I think uh, my doubt comes just simply from not understanding the mechanism by which one could do these things. Because mm -hmm. my realm of consciousness is like having trouble paying attention to this room, let alone what my hundred other bodies <laughs> would be doing. Yeah. So that, just those kinds of things. It's, it's, I don't even know if it's a doubt. It's mixed with curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, I have trouble believing that it is possible if I haven't, if I don't understand mm -hmm. how it works. So yeah. Like for example, the emanating different bodies, um, how you can figure out how to surround yourself with bodhisattvas. All these things, I just don't know the, the mechanism. Mm -hmm. So uh, Zach saying that for him. Um, where he gets into maybe it might be a doubt. Some of it is curiosity, actually. Like, how does this work? Like, how does this work? You know, kind of like need to know, like, how is this going to happen? 
Like if you're going to build a house, you kind of want to know what to do. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I think that's um, I kind of fall into that as well. And I think that's what's wonderful about these teachings and staying with them is that over time I have a sense that they fall into place more. And I want to, sh- I'll share my thoughts more on that a little bit. But I want to. Do um, two things came to mind when I was thinking about this. One is that these qualities are so magnificent. If someone would ask me, well, what are the qualities of a Buddha and what can they do? My answers would be just so, mm-hmm. so worldly and narrow, and these are so vast. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, without giving away the answer to the next part of the question, these qualities don't show up the minute then we'll start talking about the path of accumulation. Mm-hmm. These qualities show up way down, you know, mm-hmm. way into things. And so from the path of accumulation, we get to see how people are developing their minds, how these bodhisattvas are developing their minds. And mm-hmm. so it seems like a natural progression mm-hmm. that these, eventually, you know, these magnificent qualities would come about through concentration and developing wisdom and compassion. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have no trouble Mm-hmm. Because we've heard it, you know, mm-hmm. the last year about how, how this would happen. Yeah. So, uh, Vinoba saying that previously she would have had a view of a Buddha that was much more limited in terms of their capacity. But through having spent a year on this material, she sees the vastness of the possibilities or what, what is being, you know, both the the descriptions of their qualities, how vast they are, and, and how you progress along step by step, stage by stage. And so, actually, she has conviction, a level of conviction in this, the, being able to, that this is possible, to put it that way. Mm-hmm. More, than a lesson. more than what? As a lesson. More than as a lesson. So Donnie thinks that for her, she sees this as a lesson. If you see doubt coming up, you're saying you see this as a lesson to uh, try to uh, kindle your own conviction in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Correct. Yeah. It's like seeing that doubt in your mind and. If you recognize doubt as doubt, it's actually easier to do because then you can kind of label it and know that's what the mind is being afflicted with, actually, because it is an affliction. And so then you know this mind is afflicted. And so and if you recognize it as doubt, you kind of know where doubt usually goes of that type, which doesn't usually end in a very fruitful way for your practice. And I needed a lot of help in that myself and one thing venerable children taught me about this is when to stop my thinking process because a lot of this for me um, I would say kind of sounds like science fiction that's my first kind of not to go more to sci-fi than to magical thinking and um, so when I thought about that when this question came you know to answer this question I was thinking because I hadn't heard your discussions I was like well why is that and I realized that the part that's the hardest for me is the part around the form. When I think about the capacities of the mind, I'm much more able to let, you know, think a lot as possible. But when I think about the form, 
everything seems so concrete. Like, how would you do that? And it just seems kind of like mm, everything feels so solid. And so one thing that came up around that is when Venerable Children helped me to realize that because I have some faith and His Holiness has taught about this, and He's taught that that a lot of these uh, the, how you go about this and how this works and what causes you need need actually to create say the bodies of a Buddha or to have any of this happen it is taught and you have to kind of keep delving with the teachings to get there and I have some level of faith in his holiness and so when I spoke with Venner about this and I expressed this level of faith that I had then I went to the next but she said that's where you need to stop your mind because that's where you you just kind of go down this trail that doesn't help you at all. And that's, that's the thing of where the doubt comes in. It's not that you don't want to try to figure things out and discern things, but if you recognize that it's working against your practice, and that's what I do now, when I recognize that, that this isn't going to serve my Dharma practice. And it's not like I feel like I'm doing it blind, because what informs that for me is the recognition that, um, well, a lot of things appear one way and are another way. And that's quite clear to me, both in terms of form and in terms of perception. I mean, I'm, I know that for I know that. I can't say for a fact, but I do know that. And, and then I think about science and like, well, I believe a lot in what science says about form. And I haven't really seen much anything that they've, especially chemistry is what I was thinking about, like, because I had a lot of chemistry, 25 credits. And so you, it's kind of visual. Chemistry is kind of a visual thing, actually. And so it's like, yeah, I believe all that. And so I was thinking, like, well, why do I believe all this stuff? And I realized because I grew up in a culture where there's, like, villages of people at universities who, like, are filling all these rooms and doing all this science. So it's kind of like you're at Nalanda of, <laughs> of science, right? And then, they, then they've got all these products and things that they make. So you have all these manifestations of their stuff. And then all the theory and you have books and everything. So then I was thinking, wow, if I grew up in a culture where I was surrounded by all these practitioners of all different levels who were like spending all their time in their little village, I would have a whole different experience of this. And because I do take, you know, I haven't ever seen you know, the space in here that's, you know, these atoms, you know. I do have a friend who used to shoot, like, some kind of wave things and watch the electrons or the subatomic particles move around. But all I saw was a machine with a nozzle, you know. <laughs> I didn't even see, like, a laser light or anything. So, but I believe that, you know. I believe the, what we talk about in the physics and this and that. And so, for me, it's kind of similar actually you know it's a, it comes at a level of belief so then well why do I believe this so that so that opens my mind that and also just experiences that don't fit into our normal day-to-day kind of you know things come up and you hear things and even with other religions like tonight we're going to talk about the five uh, super knowledges well there's many religions that have descriptions of these things as well. I mean, Jesus walking on water and things like that, you know, and like, wow, that sounds kind of wild. But, you know, there's a lot of things throughout cultures, throughout time, that where people have had similar experiences that are described in the Buddhist teachings around some of these things that are 
you know, just they seem a little out there in a way. So those thinking in that way it helps me to keep my mind more open. And basically, the phrase that Venerable said early on when I went to her retreats that was helpful for me was to explore the possibility. And so that's the mind that is open, you know, and just explore. And then recognize where am I in my practice? And this is the biggest thing because I, this is where I think that really comes down to for me. I have a lot of conviction in the potential of the mind. And so I also am quite aware of that my mind is deluded. And so for me, it's like, well, when my mind has more clarity, I'll probably be able to see a little bit more of this. And so I'm just like, kind of like, here I am on the path. I can see where I am. Like, we've traced the whole thing out now, right? From beginning to end. And so if you kind of work your way back and you see where you are on this path, you can, you know that you're, you know, if there's anything to this, and you can see this from knowing our teachers, that they've developed their qualities and they developed them. They didn't just come like that. that you can see where you are on the path and you can know that my mind's gotten a little more clarity and it's, that's going to continue and then some of these things are going to be kind of obvious that now aren't. Jack Moisey uh, wrote in, uh, since deciding to follow the Mahayana practices, I have believed that a Buddha has extraordinary qualities. Other texts have not given them the detail of this text. So it was easier to believe in more generally stated qualities. Hmm. So he, so one person, Jack writing in saying it was easier for him to believe more generally stated qualities than the all the specifics yeah. that we got this time. Yeah. yeah. One thing Venerable Children said about this when they had this discussion was our mind is limited in what we can believe. I think that's a good thing for us to think about to realize that we have. Uh, capacities that we're, we're actually limited in now and that will change. Okay, the next question is, what is the role of a bodhisattva's accumulation of merit in progressing from one ground to another? Does anyone have any thoughts on this? is that merit is sort of the, the aspect of the mind or the cultivation of opening the space for the wisdom to arise. Mm-hmm. And that if we have obstacles, if we've got afflictive states of mind, as Lama Zopa says, it's because we haven't cultivated enough of this. Uh, well, I, I always like positive potential better than merit. Mm-hmm. And so for the bodhisattva, for them to be able to do all of these incredible things, that that mind of theirs has got to be excited and overjoyed and incredibly empowered by doing things like making offerings, by benefiting sentient beings, by thinking about these beautiful far-reaching practices, by when they're off the cushion, what they're doing in the course of their day when they're not in meditative equipoise. Before I heard about the grounds and paths, I thought that the Bodhisattva spent almost all of their time in meditative equipoise and did this little bit of work on the side called subsequent attainment. 
now I'm getting mm -hmm. a little bit more of a sense that they spend very specific time on the cushion and meditate back and forth, but they spend a whole lot more time off the cushion and subsequent attainment trying to accumulate this merit, which, which must clear the decks so that mm -hmm. the wisdom can arise. It's mm -hmm. like, it, 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 I see it more like the fertilizer and the sunshine and the water, the wisdom sort of like this beautiful seed that's going to turn into something quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be nourished, it needs to be sort of fortified. And I think that's how I see the mm -hmm. Bodhisattvas doing this kind of meditative practice. Well, what Venerable Simke is saying is that she likes the word positive potential more. And I, I um, like both, but I, I, that word is, that's helpful because you, when you think about potential, you think about growing and what what is possible um, and so that she sees this aspect as, a, as an aspect of the mind that makes it open and fertile and able to um, cultivate to cultivate wisdom and so using the analogy of like gardening which I actually for me this is exactly how I think of this it's like the um, you need say the wisdom is the seed you have to have a very certain conditions for that wisdom to grow. And so if you, if you think about it like gardening, you have to really do a lot with the soil and all the various conditions for a garden to happen, providing those. And so that's making like the mind fertile, receptive, open, and inspired. And actually what you were saying made me think of when we say the word bless, like in this 12 different sets, by way of that, one knows how they bless themselves. And that, Venerable says, a better translation is inspire. But the Tibetan word is, is actually transform into magnificence. That's the meaning of the Tibetan word. And that, I think, is a sense of, you know, how do you transform something into magnificence? Well, it takes a lot of ingredients, and a lot of those are you know, having the joyous effort, you know, really all the six perfections and all the various aspects of them. Yeah. John Owen adds, um, merit strengthens the mind, allowing the progression to occur. Merit strengthens the mind, allowing the progression, the progression to occur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had something similar. I thought of it more like a fusion where the merit reinforces the wisdom. Mm -hmm. Merit. And that together, that strength of mind fusion. keeps growing. Um, you know, allows this sort of combining the two questions. Mm -hmm. So the yeah, strength fine. of the mind grows from the merit, and the merit enhances the wisdom, mm -hmm. and it goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. So that the obscurations are eliminated on each ground, but also their, their, um, the merit, and also the, you know, just the, the merit just keeps expanding. Too. Mm -hmm. So Venerable something saying that she sees it more as a fusion. I know this is what I kind of came to after studying this is like they're informing each other they're influencing each other it's actually in a way like a dependent arising yeah the strengthening of the mind from cultivating both of these areas yeah that's I think that's how I think of it too I think a lot of the ten qualities arise due to the, the strengthening and the deepening of the marriage at the level of marriage generation by what they do on in subsequent Right, and Venerable is saying that she thinks that a lot of these qualities arise due to the merit. This is what um, I prepared on this one because I found this part again that kind of puts it in, you know, 
I like to kind of rely on the text and go from there. So it's, it talks about that the ten boomies occur because there's an, an the division into the ten boomies occurs because there's an enhancement of good qualities on later levels over former levels. And those ten qualities are these four things we've been talking about, the uh, number of good qualities, the majesty of power, the surpassing mode of practicing the ten perfections, and the mode of taking frictional rebirths. And that there's not the slightest difference with regard to these grounds in terms of seeing the pure nature of reality. So it's, that's not the part that's different. And so then, uh, for me, I go back to the gardening analogy and what is, what's happening with that soil and all of these conditions that the seed of wisdom is in and, and that our level of uh, more and more freedom from obscurations you know, is, is happening. And so what I wanted to do is go through a little bit of, um, mostly this is from the part on the mode of uh, practicing the ten for perfections, that aspect, because I think that this is where we really see what are these qualities and what's happening stage by stage. So in the first Bhumi, where the very joyful and uh, where the main thing that you work on in terms of the ten perfections is giving, it says that through the power of amassing the accumulations of merit and subsequent attainment, independence upon directly realizing emptiness and meditative equipoise, one has a special capacity to further the welfare of sentient beings. So this is not any kind of merit. It's a merit that's based, has a certain power to it because it's based, the basis, you have this wisdom going that you didn't have before. You, now you have the direct realization of emptiness. So then the activities that you do when you have these kind of realizations, they're informed by this wisdom. And so the, the, actually the merit of those activities is going to increase. And that's what we see as we go through the boomies here. So as, as we go through the boomies, our capacity has become more and more amazing, really, to further the welfare of sentient beings and to develop this omniscient consciousness. So then the second boomy, which is the stainless, in terms of the ten perfections that's related to ethics, one thing it said about that is that on the occasion of the exalted wisdom of subsequent attainment, so when you're off the cushion, uh, one amasses the collection of merit for the sake of abandoning the middling of the great afflictions, and one is able to progress to the third ground. So we, uh, you know, this merit, of course, is what allows us to progress from ground to ground. But then through the maturation of these qualities, the perfection of ethics becomes supreme. The Bodhisattva becomes a universal monarch helping beings, the master of four continents and of the seven precious, precious substances. So we can see from that that as you perfect ethics, you know, of course you're going to be in, uh, more doing more uh, constructive actions because you're not harming and you're benefiting people. And then these seven uh, precious substances, these are symbolic of the qualities. So what are those? Well, these are the seven... Um, awakening factors or seven factors of enlightenment from the seven, 37 harmonies that we'll be talking about next week. But think about having really much higher levels and what it says, correct mindfulness, correct discrimination of phenomena, correct effort, correct rapture, correct pliancy, correct concentration, and correct equanimity. If you think about having those qualities, you can just see that how you're going to be moving through your day, what, what you're going to be doing is going to have 
much more power than what we have now. It will be much more virtuous, creating a lot of uh, merit. And what Venerable said is that around, regarding this boomy, the stainless, is you don't waste your time with non-virtuous actions. I mean, you've got all this together. Your afflictions aren't controlling you in the same way that they are right now. And then the third boomy, the luminous, which the perfection is patience. On this ground, one achieves a perfection of patience, destroying all chances of anger, whether awake or dreaming. So that right there is going to be, you know, the absence, you know, not harming, not having anger informing our day is, is going to be a huge way that merit is going to continue to increase. And what it, then it says, the third ground is called luminous because the pacifying light of wisdom arises. The concentrations of superknowledges are generated while desire and hatred are extinguished completely. Um, through the maturation of these qualities, the bodhisattvas surpassing practices, surpassingly practices the deeds of patience. And putting an end to desire completely becomes a great, wise king of the gods. So we can see there our anger is like not as big of a problem. We're starting to get these um, super knowledges, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And there's also this part in putting an end to desire completely. This means that this bodhisattva is very skilled in their ability to overcome lustful desires and to help others do that as well. And so, you know, that's quite beneficial because you can see in our world so many things happen out of um, really kind of an addictive kind of mind. I mean, most of, you know, that addictive mind is a problem. (laughs) Most of our prisons are full of people who, you know, have something going on with some kind of substance when they did their crime. But we have that same mindset with when they say lustful, it, it mostly means desirous you know, filled with attachment for whatever it is. It could lead you to theft. It could lead you to all kinds of things. Um, And then the fourth boomy is the radiant. And here the perfection is effort. And so with this perfection of joyous effort, we don't have these lazinesses that we were talking about here. So you then have a lot of energy to do meritorious activities. And this, when Venerable talked about this level, she started also bringing in the way that on these ten boomies, on some of them, they start bringing in where the three, three higher trainings come in, the training in ethics, concentration, and wisdom. And she went back and explained that in this way, which I think is useful for this discussion, because we see of the six, of, the, of these, you know, many of these relate to the merit side of the world. And... And then you'll see how it merges with the wisdom side. But on the first boomy, the generosity is the base of the training of the three higher trainings. On the second boomy is ethics. The third is concentration. And the fourth through sixth is wisdom. And on each of those, it's a different wisdom that they're focusing on. So on the fourth boomy, it's the 37 harmonies, um, which we'll talk about next week. On the fifth boomy, it's the four noble truths and also the two truths. And then on the sixth boomy, it's the 12 links. So those will be brought up a little bit as we go through these boomies. But basically on the fourth boomie then, with this some focus on the 37 harmonies, the main thing to think about is that the bodhisattva gets very good at subduing this solid sense of a personal identity, which is this sense of, solid sense of I. And when you can do that, 
the way you're going to act, interact with people is going to be completely different from what it is now because we won't have this big need to feel like we need to protect ourselves. You don't have this big sense of I coming up. And can you imagine moving through your day without that ever happening? Just at the level that we practice now, you know, most of us here, we have an awareness of our ego getting in the way. Imagine that that's just like calm all the time. You have all this concentration and you can kind of go in, you know, just tap right in, knowing that, wow, that's, that's not what's really happening here. That's just, you just write it off. So then the text says, light of constant virtue and wisdom that abandons commotion. <laughs> I like that. You can imagine what your life would be like if that was what informed your experience. You know, that was what your experience was like. The fifth bumi is the one that's difficult to overcome. So now you're getting more into the Four Noble Truths and you can help others a lot because um, the, your mindfulness and your introspective awareness is so long, so strong. The sixth bumi is where you're working more with the 12 links and then you really see how people go in and out of samsara. And um, you also have this, what she called that uncommon absorption of cessation. So this is quite a quality to have developed. So this is the common absorption of cessation was when the mental factors of feeling and discrimination cease. So just imagine that sometime when you're on the cushion. Imagine that the feeling component wasn't driving you crazy with your knees hurting <laughs> or anything like that. And that your discrimination mental factor wasn't like, picking apart everything, you could just chill out. You know? So those functions can actually temporarily cease. And the uncommon absorption of cessation is then when you take that state of mind, you meditate on emptiness. So imagine having a mind that can do that. So that's, that's, uh, that's going to generate a lot of merit just because of the way you're going to be functioning in the world. So I think we've given some sense of how, as we go through the boomies, I didn't complete them all. And I, I only actually went through the seventh very closely. So the seventh has a lot to do with skillful means. And so that's kind of like really when we're trying to help beings any way to have skill in terms of helping them understanding their dispositions. Um, yeah, being able to really tune in in a way that's helpful. That's what skillful means is about. Okay, and then the next question um, is, what is the role of a bodhisattva's accumulation of wisdom in progressing from one path to another and then from one ground to another? So this one is, you know, really it's what we've been talking about throughout this whole um, presentation once we got to the path of seeing. And the terminology we had to learn around all this with this thing with the uninterrupted path, the liberated path, the subsequent attainment, all that. So basically, you know, oh, and the one that's neither. So basically, when you're on the cushion, most of the time you're just doing the, uh, the meditative equipoise on emptiness that's neither. You're just kind of learning about emptiness. You're kind of probing. You're growing your wisdom. But then some signs arise and you, you understand the path well enough that you kind of have this sense like, wow, I'm, I'm going to start, I can feel that I'm going to um, be able to get rid of some of these uh, obscurations now. So then in, in one session, you have the uninterrupted path 
where your meditative equipoise and emptiness is so strong and so able to penetrate clearly a certain level of affliction or obscuration that you're clearing it away. It's like you're cleaning the room. It's like, you know, you've seen this thief and you're <laughs> throwing him out. And then immediately in that same session, you'll go to the liberated path, which means you're now in the next boomy or the next ground, whatever, depending on uh, where you're starting from. And that's where you've liberated yourself from that level of obscuration. And so we've spent a lot of time going through um, how that happens on each of the various levels, the grounds and the paths. Um, I think another thing that mm, I think of a lot here was how we entered each of the grounds, even earlier on. I mean, to me, there's a kind of wisdom that takes you into the path of accumulation to develop the spontaneous bodhicitta. Um, it might not be the wisdom realizing reality, but there's, a, I think, a kind of wisdom of um, when they talk about the two kinds, the one that ha- relates more to kind of conventional reality, the workings of karma and things like that. Because we've informed our, our experience with renunciation at that point. And so there's, uh, to me, that's, that's uh, a wisdom that got us. You know, we're not divorced from wisdom, I think, to get into the path of accumulation. That's what I'm trying to say, even though it's not the wisdom that directly realizes emptiness. And then the path of preparation, there's a wisdom involved there because that path you enter once you have this, you've been on the path of accumulation, and now you have the union of calm abiding and special insight observing emptiness. So, you know, you're at the conceptual level, but that's not divorced from wisdom. That takes you right into the path of preparation then the path of seeing now you have direct perception of emptiness without it's non-conceptual so I think that um, we see that that there's some type of wisdom that's moving us through each path and then each ground each boomy one thing that I think was important here I want to just say one last thing on here is written in a way that's not so maybe easy but it gives that sense that, you know, the object is the same. The, the reality that we're seeing is the same. But it's like different levels of, mm, it's not, it's just the time. Maybe I want to do this the way they said it so I don't mess it up. Until the 10th ground, there is the difference of newly seeing a formerly not seen factor of freedom from adventitious defilements in terms of the pure nature reality. It's said that the exalted wisdoms of meditative equipoise of the ten bhumis have greater and lesser vision in terms of directly realizing the true cessations which were obtained by uninterrupted path of the lower ground. So that's really hard to understand you know, in a way, the way it's written, but it gives you that sense that the object is the same, but there's uh, a different level of, of uh, ignorance that you're kind of clearing out and a different level of obscuration that you're clearing out and also how long you're spending in those moments I think changes quite a bit and your flex your ability to go in and out because your powers of concentration increase and when you read in the Pali canon about just developing the jhanas and all that they talk about going in and out of these things like like all these different kind of concentrations they are just their minds are so flexible and able 
it's kind of like looking at a rainbow and just naming the colors that they can just do, 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 do. They can move their mind into all these different concentrations. So when you have that level of concentration, then you're, you know, working with uh, on the wisdom side of things. You can see how that's going to change as you go through the path. So I think that pretty much answers that one. And then the last question is, what are the six super knowledges? Do all arhats have them? Do all bodhisattvas have them? And would a bodhisattva, why would a bodhisattva, bodhisattva cultivate each one? So I'll just review the superpowers first. These are things uh, that um, can be developed. Actually, I, re- I listened to all of our audio. She never said arhats can do this, but she talked about common beings. Well, actually, anyone who develops concentration develops these, so an arhat would. Um, and they're a function of concentration. So um, they are uh, supernormal powers. So these are the five supernologists. They're supernormal powers. These are things like the ability to pass through walls, walk on water, go through the earth, fly in the sky, make your body into many bodies. From many bodies, make yourself back into one body. So those are physical supernormal powers. Then there was the divine ear. You can hear things that are being spoken in other parts of the universe. Understanding others' minds is the third one. You're able to understand a mind that is affected by attachment from a mind that's not affected by attachment. One affected by anger from one not affected by anger. What is a concentrated from a non-concentrated mind? What is a liberated mind? What's not a liberated mind? So you can see what's in others' mind and the level of their spiritual cultivation. And this is really useful, <laughs> which we'll talk about how we might use these. The fourth one is recollection of previous lives, which is your own previous lives. And then the fifth one is the divine eye. You can see things far away that are going on in other places of the universe. You see living beings dying and being reborn according to their karma. So... Um, those would be very interesting things to have developed, but not have your ethics developed very well. <laughs> that would be scary. <laughs> and what happens sometimes is people who develop these, because it's very difficult for us to see our arrogance, is sometimes people don't see their arrogance and they get into a lot of trouble. And we've heard some stories, even amongst people in this room, about kind of that relate to this, so it's kind of messy. Um, but if you have uh, a bodhicitta motivation where you're really developing these things to benefit others, then these would be very useful. I mean, think about it. We Even if, well, I don't know if people read the, um, the biography of um, that Theravada monk that became an arhat. We have it in our library. His students were, it was a little hard for them because he could read their minds. <laughs> Can you imagine? I was thinking about that. You know, like if you just think about if your mind was like a radio and everything that was in it was like blasting out for the world to hear. If, if your teacher had clairvoyant powers, it would be a little bit like that. His students tended to behave. <laughs> they, the person who wrote the book talked about that because he had this power actually. And so. That would, that would have a good effect. <laughs> so um, think about if you had the first one, 
you know, passing through walls. I mean, you'd just be able to go anywhere quickly. So, like, if we had a question about the building project, we could go over to our Venable Children and say, hey, you have two minutes here? I can talk to you about this. <laughs> okay, see ya. <laughs> be back. Now I'm time. I'm not even late for lunch. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't need lunch anymore. But, you know, you'd just be able to get yourself there, and including going to hear teachings, which would be fantastic. So, you know, if someone, if you had that power, just think about it. If you had, like, well, we've heard some stories sometimes. And I had one time I was with my nephew, and I, I always kind of thought this was like that, you know, like, well, maybe that person was a bodhisattva, because he wanted to go fishing. And I, it was really hard not to want to have him go fishing, but I was just, you know, getting into Buddhism then, and I wasn't so keen on this fishing thing. So we went down to the beach, but we didn't have any bait, so we had to find stuff on the shore, and so we found some dead things. But this man walked up who helped us find bait that was already dead. And then it took us so long to get all this together, we never actually got around to the fishing part. And it was just like, it really helped that this man showed up because I was in this total internal uh, quagmire about taking my nephew fishing. He wanted to do this. It was like a dream of his. And so I, I don't know how I got myself into this. <laughs> but then when it was really happening, I was like, we Buddhists, we don't believe in killing any creature. So I was like, how am I going to make this work? You know. And so this man showed up while we're walking on the beach. And everything just fell into place so nicely. We didn't end up killing anything. We didn't end up catching anything. <laughs> and we got to go home and get rid of the fishing pole because we had rented it. <laughs> so I was like, that person could have just emanated right then to help me out. You know, it's possible in my mind. So then the divine ear, you can hear things. So now, you know, as we're having our discussions around the table and Venerable Children is off and another country, she can just check in and like, well, what are they doing back there now? Maybe I should give them a call and have a Skype. <laughs> yep, they need some help. <laughs> and, you know, and then understanding other people's minds, you know, that's huge because I think this is thing of when teachers really can tune in, like, I think of Venerable here, like, you know, she has this uncanny ability to know when our self-centered thought is driving the what we're displaying. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. What we're displaying, what's manifesting in our in our behaviors, and what she can take in, and when it's not, and when there's a place where a person you really have to, you know, you have to change gears. You have to attune yourself to a person, and and that ability that she has in my mind is this kind of thing of being able to understand a person to a, a certain level, you know, and we can see just in kind of more worldly, you know, I'm just more, you know, when we're more attuned to other people, how useful it is. So imagine being able to know the contents of their mind and their spiritual level of development, knowing like, wow, they're distracted all the time. I don't think I'm going to give them this thing to do because they're just, they can't hold their mind on it or that they need this kind of uh, explanation or that they respond to this. That's where the, you could have a lot more skillful means. And then recollecting your previous lives um, is, but especially divine eye seeing others, then you kind of know what your karma is with other beings. And that's huge in the sense of um, 
at least according to the Buddhist worldview, our karmic connections, we want to have a lot of karmic connections with others. And those influence our um, experiences with others. Yeah, and so you'd actually know kind of what your relationships were like before. And you'd know um, who you might have more potential to help. You know, when you think about when the Buddha uh, became enlightened under the Bodhi tree, and he took off from there, the first person he met was that merchant, you know? And it was just, to me, that's such a crack up, you know? It's like, that that person didn't have the predispositions to recognize uh, the qualities of the Buddha. He recognized there was something special about him. Like, it would, to me, it always makes me think of, like, some guys walking down the road, like um, John Coltrane, the great saxophonist, is walking down the road with a saxophone. And some guy walks up to him and says, yo, cool, cool saxophone you got there. What can you do with that thing? And, you know, you look pretty cool. And, but they never listen to him play. They just, he's a cool looking guy and he's got this cool looking saxophone. And then he goes, well, have a nice day. See you later. But he never heard him play the instrument. Never heard this amazing, you know, person. You know, and so that, that first merchant was like that. And so his karma wasn't such that his mind was able to be ripened in that moment, even upon meeting the Buddha, the first, one of the first people he met after he became fully awakened. So, you know, I don't know if other people had ideas to share about this. Oh, yeah, I didn't answer that. Yeah. Well, actually, on the, actually, they're actually, the five, is, I, they're on the first boomy, but they're far superior when you get to the third boomy. So that's when they're spoken of more. So what I have here from, this might have been from Venerable because I didn't put it in quotes. She said, the five pure super knowledges are attained on the first boomy but are far superior here on the third boomy because the powers of concentration are deeper. And so they're spoken of in the third boomy. Because you have to have, um, to, to realize emptiness directly, you actually have to have developed shamatha. So you have a certain level of concentration already, but now you're deepening it and deepening it as you continue on, apparently. So that's what she said about that. Yeah. Um, oh, but not all heart. Yeah. Or jhana, but I was wondering about our hats in the fundamental vehicles because yeah. they don't have to go through those jhanas. Yeah, that's right. It's actually true because our hat can you can just have the course. Is that called the course? I don't remember the name of that now exactly. Yeah, there's a level of concentration, access concentration. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know that they would have that then, so it's possible, possibly not, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and I, you know where we could find it, and I, I just ran out of time, is I think that we might be able to find this in this book by Jeffrey Hopkins called Walking Through Walls. It's a book on meditative stabilization, and I, I just didn't have time to, to look it up. Because I was, I wanted to actually look up the thing about that question about the arhats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's possible that at access concentration, maybe not. I don't know. We'll have to find out. Anything else? 
Okay, we did it. We lived. <laughs> okay. That was fun. I like these quizzes. Okay. So um, next week we have four more questions. I think when I read them, they were a little bit participatory. Yeah, the, I think two of them are very much. They all, everyone is supposed to do all of them, but it really helps when they ask you what you think, <laughs> if you would think about it first. <laughs> so take a look at that quiz, and then uh, after that, unless anything has changed, Venable Children will be back the next Thursday. We'll be starting teachings on the six ways of six uh, ways of knowing cognition and also explaining the classifications of phenomena a little bit, and then we'll be moving into the tenets. So maybe. And, and the text, there's two texts for the short series that she's going to do about the seven ways of cognition or whatever. And you can write the office at office.shavasti at gmail.com, and we can send you that text. Okay. Well, let's dedicate the merit that we all um, find a path that suits us, allows us to grow spiritually, allows us to have very clean, clear understanding of ethical conduct so that we can have very concentrated minds and develop our wisdom, that we all find teachers who will lead us all the way to full awakening and um, listen to what they say and follow their instructions to the best that we can in any moment, always aspiring to um, develop our renunciation, our bodhicitta, and our wisdom. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline but increase forevermore.